this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. So how do you play hard to get without risking your deal? In essence, that is the nub of it. That is what great negotiation is all about. And my next guest, Rob Walling, managed to toe that line beautifully. He built a company called Drip and sold it to Lead Pages. I'll let him describe how he did that. But what I want you to listen for is how carefully he towed that line between getting exactly what he wanted for his business, not capitulating, not giving up, and yet somehow keeping the acquire at the table to the point where he was able to consummate a transaction that changed his life forever. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Rob Walling. Rob Walling, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, John. So tell me a little bit about Drip. What are you guys or what did you guys do? Yeah, so Drip is an email service provider. So, you know, listeners might be familiar with MailChimp or Constant Contact. And yep. Drip was a, um, we built it as a more sophisticated, a little bit more advanced version of those. So it was, a you know, 20 to 50% more expensive, but also had a lot more automation and power. Um, then we built it, started in 2012, and then, you know, wound up exiting in 2016. Got it. How did you fund the the start? Did, it was it bootstrapped or did you get raised money or how did you do that? You know, I, I kind of, I call it self-funded because I had a prior uh, software as a service app that was throwing off about 10, 20 grand a month. And that I self-funded in essence, you know, when I think of bootstrapping, I think, man, you're super cash strapped and you're pulling, you know, hundred dollars a month off of your, you know, off of your salary or whatever. But no, this, I had a decent amount of funding. We wound up going negative or I say we, it was, it was my personal uh, wealth, you know, wound up going about 150K, 200K, um, I won't say in the hole, but it, I was pulling revenue off another product in essence that I had I had built up over prior years. I later sold that too. Once Drip took off, I wound up selling that other app. Got it. So you're using kind of what, what's that old expression? Uh, robbing Peter, Peter and Paul. Yeah, yeah, robbing Peter and yeah. Paul, et cetera. You're you're kind of taking money out of one and, yeah. and investing it into into Drip. Love the name, by the way. What was the URL? So we, it was getdrip.com. But then okay. later we got, we wound up getting drip.co for, I think it was like three or $4,000 and that okay. was much better. And then eventually once we were acquired, that company, uh, Lead Pages, they had a lot of venture funding and they actually bought drip.com from a broker and, or, or a squatter or whatever. So yeah, right now it's drip.com, which is it's pretty, pretty baller domain name. Do you know what they spent for drip.com? I don't. I don't know the exact amount. I do know that the broker had contacted me when I owned it and we went back and forth and he basically said he wouldn't let it go for less than like low six figures, you know? So it was something in the, I'm guessing in the, you know, with a one in front and, and five zeros after it is, is my guess. So. Got it. Okay. Excellent. So in any event, you had a, a URL and you built this company with, with money that you had from another source. Um, and it had a point of differentiation. It sounds like compared to, you know, AWeber or Constant Contact or some That's of the other right. email marketing providers. Yeah, it had the automation side that, you know, more sophisticated marketers um, really gravitated towards it. And I have, you know, a bit of a, like a personal brand audience in the startup and the SaaS software as a service space. So that those were the early adopters. And then we started getting bloggers and, you know, frankly, podcast hosts, anyone with an audience who might use an, an AWeber or Constant Contact um, started 
kind of migrating over. And, and yeah, we should give your podcast a plug. What's the name of the podcast? Where can people yeah. find it? That kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. That podcast, my podcast is called Startups for the Rest of Us. And it's about, really, it's about bootstrapping SaaS, bootstrapping software, and been going for more than 10 years, 520-ish episodes. Some, wow. some of it chronicles my journey of, of Drip. When I listen back, it's, it's pretty crazy. That's wild. So what was the journey? Like as you, as you build up, so you had a SaaS business model. So for those not familiar, software as a service, you're billing customers by the month or soon yep. by the year by as the well month. in some yep. cases. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And, and, and so what were the kind of key milestones in your journey? Like as you look back, were there inflection points or one or two kind of key decisions that you made that you think were critical? Yeah, I, there definitely were. Um, so we broke ground on the code. I had a, a, a contractor who was writing the code who later kind of retroactively became a co-founder, you know, a minority hmm. co-founder in the business, um, just because he was such a key person, you know, key person. Um, so we started in December of 2012, and then we launched November of 2013, but spent that entire year basically marketing, generating interest, building a list. We had this email list of about 3,500 people who were interested in it, and that was a key decision that got us to about seven or $8,000 a month in revenue right from the start, which, you know, it is, it's not nothing. Um, and, and it was able to basically pay for, you know, his salary as well as, you know, I don't know, pay quite a bit, quite a few expenses. And then we spent the next eight months just struggling because we didn't have, we had a product that wasn't great and it wasn't that differentiated. You could wire up the existing competitors to kind of handle what Drip could do. And so over that next month, we, or next eight months, we really looked for product market fit, which is that term of, hey, I've built something that people want. It's differentiated enough that I'm really starting to hit escape velocity. And so it wasn't until it was like mid 2014 where that up and to the right, you know, it was that, that kind of hot, the bootstrapped hockey stick of, hey, we go from 500 to $1,000 a month in growth. Suddenly it's like five grand a month, every month of recurring revenue just piling on. Hmm. Fantastic. And, and that inflection point happened because you added the automation to the <clears throat> software. Yeah. And at first it was pretty basic automations. Um, and, but that was enough. It was the fact that we were competing against either, either apps without any type of differentiation or any type of automation, or they were just really sophisticated and really expensive, $500 yeah. a month and up. And we were at that 50 to, you know, $200 price point. Um, so things went up into the right almost immediately as we did that. And that's, it's unusual, right? I mean, there, it was a silver bullet. It's pretty rare that you, you launch a feature and it, it really makes that much of a difference. But in this case, mm -hmm. in this case it did. And so how fast are you growing? Like in terms of like on a percentage basis? Yeah. I mean, we, stuff. yeah, we were going, um, you know, I remember hitting 20, 20 to 25 K a month in recurring revenue. And we were growing up between like two and three, two and 4,000 a month. So that's what, 10, 10, 15%. And then as we got up closer to a million dollars in annual, we started growing 10 to 12 a month in, in, in revenue. So I think that's still 10 or 10 or 15%. So it was this pretty long. I mean, I think there was a 15 month span where we were growing like 13% every month, month over month. Hmm. It was, it was really that startup growth curve that you don't, you just don't see in a lot of, you know, a lot of businesses. And so how big did you get this company before you decided to sell it? Yeah, we got it into, um, it, it was low seven figures. So almost just about a couple million bucks. And the, the thing annual is- annual recurring revenue? An annual recurring revenue, yep. And the thing is, you know, when we were first, we had several potential suitors. And so like the very first conversation, we were probably doing half a million a year. In, in revenue. And then by the time everything got to the end and closed, it was like, you know, just, just about a, a couple million dollars. So it was a very, it was fast growth, but it was also a long process, you know, of, of 18 months of conversation and such. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And are you, I know most software companies aren't necessarily profitable. That's not the intent, but are you yeah. covering your expenses? Are you making profit on that 2 million or you're kind of feeding it all back into the company development? mostly feeding it back into the company. Um, we would we would grow, let's say we'd grow $10,000 in a month and that was enough to hire another developer. And we're in this really competitive space where there's there are literally hundreds of, of companies that do something similar to this to choose from. So feature differentiation and just, you know, expanding the product was, was a big goal. And so we'd grow by 10,000 and then it's like, okay, 
let's hire that next that next developer or we'd grow by 5000 and let's hire the support person and so there were definitely months where we made money and there was you know I think there was like $100,000 in the bank when we got acquired type thing. Like there was enough cushion to pay and we could have, we could have drawn money out, but it was also, it would have definitely impacted our growth. You know, that we were reinvesting in the business because we knew it could be a whatever, five, 10, $20 million business in, in a matter of a couple of years. How was your churn? It was very low. In fact, it was net negative, um, which is a term. Yeah. It, wow. it basically, if your, if your churn gets low where, you know, two, 3% cancellation rate. And you have what's called expansion revenue where your existing customers are, are paying you more, which with an email service provider, hey, they're always growing their lists. They're importing more people. They're doing promotions. You know, that lists are growing faster than people are canceling. Um, we had months of net negative churn. It wasn't every month, but I think it was, I mean, especially during the last year before the acquisition, maybe it was like three or four of those months were net negative. Um, and then after the acquisition, obviously we had even more resources and, and we're able to get it to, I don't know, it was 50, 75% of the months were, were net negative. So did you get a sense as you're growing this company? I mean, obviously um, you've, you've exited other businesses. Uh, were, did you have any sense of what it might be worth? I mean, I'm guessing in the podcast, you're hearing these multiples that SaaS companies are going for. Like, were you starting to form some opinion on what it might be worth? You know, not until we started being approached by potential acquirers because it just wasn't on my radar. I mean, I was running this business. I kind of felt a little bit hair on fire, to be honest. Um, by the end, we were at about 10, a team size of 10, although it was like two contractors and, you know, several full-time people. But um, I was not thinking about multiples because I just wasn't thinking about selling it. It was this fast-growing, break-even slash slightly profitable bootstrapped company and my co-founder and I owned 100% of it. And so I wasn't thinking we need to sell. I was thinking I'm kind of burning out. You know, that was definitely happening. Um, but it wasn't until potential acquirers started, con you know, poking around that I thought, man, I, I do need to figure out some range here. Because if I get into any type of conversation, I need to have some, some confidence in what I'm talking about. What was your first uh, salvo? What was the first sort of person who approached you with the conversation about acquisition? Yeah, the what very first like? one was a, um, it was another, I believe they were bootstrapped as well. And it was a software as a service app that was like membership websites or some type of membership platform. And we got in talks when, it wasn't even talks, it was a handful of, of phone calls, basically, Zoom calls. And I believe we were doing about a half a million a year in revenue at the time. And it became apparent pretty quickly that I don't, A, I think we were bigger than they thought we were, um, but B, I just don't think they had the cash you know, to, to pay because by that time it was like, I started looking into SaaS multiples and, you know, most people, I mean, joke at the, at the multiples that you get for a SaaS company. But typically if you're doing north of a million dollars in revenue, um, since it's subscription, you can get, I mean, anywhere from, you know, three to 10, three to 14 times revenue, not profit. And it depends on how strategic the acquirer is and, and this and that. But um, really, you know, I wouldn't sell a SaaS company like that for a profit multiple, which I, you know, an EBITDA multiple, right? Which is obviously the typical, the typical model. So once we started talking about that, I mean, it was, you know, it was going to be several million dollars for these guys to acquire. And I, I just don't think they, they had it. So they kind of backed away. Got it. Got it. And, and it sounds like you had a few of those conversations before we, we did. Yeah. I, I was contacted by a couple different private equity firms kind of doing roll-ups. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, private equity so in, in software um, as they disco were discovering SaaS in this time. I mean, this is 2015, really, when the conversation started. And the one that piqued my interest the most, we had about five folks contact me over the course of 18 months. And they were all, they were interesting conversations, but I definitely struggled a little bit with the idea of getting acquired by private equity. Um, I had a lot of my personal brand invested in this app and I didn't want it to, I didn't want, I don't know, customers to get let down. I didn't want the employees to get let down. You know, there was, I was married to it a little bit. Um, but the one that was most interesting was this, this venture funded startup called Lead Pages, And, and they're who, you know, we eventually did the deal with, but I, I knew the co-founder, I'm sorry. Yeah, I knew one of the co-founders because we had just grown up in the same orbit in essence. Like he, he was a, a podcaster um, doing marketing podcasts and I was in the startup space and we kind of knew of each other. And so when he emailed me, it was this very short email of, 
like, we love drip. Would you be interested in selling it? It was this very forward, you know, thing. And he's like, we should have a, have a phone call. So it was not the typical corporate development kind of dance of like strategic partnership language. It was really, huh, we're interested in acquiring. Let's have a talk. And what was your reaction to the email? Well, so my initial reaction was like internally was like, oh my gosh, this could actually be something. So they had raised $38 million in venture funding and they had specifically said in their press release for the, like their last raise of 28 or 30 million, they said, this is to acquire companies. So I, I knew he was serious that they were trying to roll up, you know, lead pages is, is landing pages and websites. And when you have a landing page, the next thing you want to do is like send people email, right? You capture email and then you kind of nurture them and you get in a relationship with them. And so they, I knew they were looking for probably to acquire a smaller, you know, ESP. And ESP uh, is email service provider. Correct. Okay. Yep. Got it. Yep. Yep. And so when I got the, the email, I remember thinking, I mean, this is a great business I'm running, but also we either need to raise a small amount of funding because I felt like we were bursting at the seams from the outside. It didn't look like that, but I was running around with my hair on fire. I needed to hire another developer. I needed to hire a kind of an operations person because I was doing everything. And I was thinking, we could raise a round, an angel round of let's say $500,000, go through that. Then I, maybe I can sell in two, three, four, five years, or this might be an opportunity to take cash off the table, you know? And, and I mean, I've been doing startups since 2005. So this is, I'm about 10, 11 years into the journey and all my chips were now into drip. I had sold everything else that I had ever built. Hmm. And I would, I, you know, obviously have this many millions of dollars of net worth, but it's tied up in private company stock and I'm completely undiversified. And I remember that was a little, I was a little terrified, um, hmm. just that I didn't have some type of liquidity, you know, outside of, of drip and with all the competitors nipping at our heels, I always, I am a little bit, I'm maybe a little bit too pessimistic, but I was always thinking, what if it goes under tomorrow? You know, there were spammers would come, break in and attack us and our, our sending IPs got blocked at one point. We couldn't send email. You know, there was always that fear of like, what if this goes to zero next month? Well, probably not super realistic. It definitely was in the back of my head of how, how long do I want to, you know, run like this. So all your chips, describe your, your personal life at this. Are you a single guy living in a condo on his own or do you have dependents? Do you have, yep. you know, like a mortgage? What's going on? Yep. Married with two kids and a mortgage in Fresno, California, which was fine. All that was getting paid for. And I was never worried about going, going bankrupt or anything like that. Like, you know, again, I had you know, $100,000 that I'd pulled out of the business at one point. So there was, there was money there that would keep me going. And I've started five, six companies by this point. So I knew that I could always land on my feet. The worry was not that. The worry was, this is my home run. This is the one time that I've really knocked it out of the park. This is the biggest app I've ever built. Don't screw this up. You know, A, don't sell it. If you do sell it, don't sell it for too little. B, if you don't sell it, don't run it in over the top, run it into the ground. You know, I've seen folks, it's on the upswing and you get these amazing multiples and then the business crests. And by the time you go flat or you start decreasing, well, now the business is barely worth anything, right? Uh, you know, a SaaS business might sell for one times or one and a half times revenue at that point because it's just not, you don't have that growth going. So there was definitely a little bit of, of fear motivating me to like not screw it up. Hmm. That's such an interesting, well-articulated and I think unspoken reason that a lot of people decide to sell, right? It's like, yeah. I'm all in and every day <laughs> I'm all in. Yeah. yeah. Did you find that your decision-making was impacted by that realization that you were all in? Like did your decision-making change from when you had 10,000 in, in, in MRR versus whatever, a couple, a couple hundred thousand. Yeah. 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 Um, a little bit. I, I wouldn't say, you know, I'm pretty, I'm an engineer, right? So I, I used to write software code. So I'm very, pretty left-brained about it. While I was stressed about the decision, I took a year or more to make the decision to sell. So mm. it was not an impulsive decision. And the negotiations were, were long and drawn out, partially because I wasn't going to sell for less than made sense. You know, I, I needed enough money to never have to work again. That was my goal. And I wasn't going to sell for a penny less than that. And so I had it all worked out based on my finances and, you know, where we lived and what was going on. I was like, yeah, I, I can do that. So while it did, it was part of the motivation of like, I can let this go, you know, and, and I think it's a, a potentially a wise decision to, you know, be able to move on to the next thing. Um, it, it wasn't, I didn't have to sell. 
And I never found myself saying, no, I need this deal to go through because I didn't want to back myself even mentally into that corner because I knew that it would potentially cause me to make a bad negotiation, you know, negotiating decision. I mean, you're a relatively young guy for folks watching on YouTube. They could see that firsthand. Um, you've said you already have five or six other sort of apps in your in the past that you've created. I mean, why was never having to work again such a motivating thing? Yeah, that's, that's a really it's good funny because you're now because we're going to talk about it later. But you you yeah. started another business and there'll be yeah. another one after that, another one after that. Like why? Why is, is having enough money so that you'd never have to work again motivating? Because clearly you are working. and I am working again. Work. That's yeah. the thing. I'm glad you pointed that out. It's not that I never wanted to work again because I knew that I would. I mean, I've been, I've been blogging and podcasting and writing books and running conferences on the side for now for 15 years on the side of running these software companies. So I'm right. always going to do something. So it wasn't that I never uh, was going to work again. It's that I didn't want to have to. There's a difference, you know, it's like, it's this freedom, like the, the three kind of things that I live my life by are freedom, purpose, and relationships. These are the three things I value. And I started companies because I wanted freedom from working a day job, from having a boss and coworkers that maybe I didn't want to work with, and from basically being reliant on, on other people. So I wanted that freedom. And then purpose is building interesting companies. And obviously I have purpose with my family as well. Um, and then relationships, of course, you know, family and friends and such. But that freedom I kept, it kept feeling fleeting. It kept, it kept like, yeah, I had a, a SaaS app right before Drip and it was almost 90% net profit margin, right? It was thrown off mm. 20, 20 grand a month that I, I used to fund Drip, sometimes 30 grand. It was this amazing profitable business that I had, you know, it was just life-changing um, in terms of the, the, what we could do with our life. But it kept the competitors would come and Google would delist it and Google broke the API. And I, I kept looking at this thing of like, I'm never going to rest easy until I have that cash in the bank. Just having a business that's throwing off two, 300 grand a year. It was amazing. But I was always looking over my shoulder and that really became, you know, the goal of like, wh at what point do I not look over my shoulder anymore and truly feel like I have, you know, that I do have that perpetual freedom. And, and that was, that was it. It was getting to that number. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs would be listening to you right now, Rob, and say, yeah, I, I definitely want that feeling, a sense of not having to work if I don't want to. So for you, it sounds like you kicked in your left brain and you did some calculations. What were the calculations that you did to figure out what that number was? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, actually. I spent several months um, kind of looking at you know, obviously starting with Google and then learning about there's this thing called the 4% rule where that's, that's a dubious rule, but it basically um, some economists and investment types did a, a research study and they said, hey, in theory, you could live for the next 30 or 40 years on, uh, uh, you know, on 4% of what you have in the bank if you invest mostly in stocks. And they ran a back test through the stock market. And so they said, all right, so if you had $1 million dollars, in cash today, you and you only drew out forty thousand a year. That theoretically, you could, you know, in most cases, live for thirty or more years. In some of the simulations, you actually had more money left at the end of that thirty. You had more, literally, had more than a million dollars, so you could almost live perpetually on it. Now, since then, we've had these two massive market corrections. You know, we've had all this stuff, and right. so people Couple are pandemics saying, and, yeah. totally. And yeah. so it depends on when you start that. And so, really, I started saying. Well, what does three and a half percent look like? Well, what is a three percent rule? You know, and that's what I started hearing is if you want to be really safe, you you just ratchet that down to a point where I mean, uh, you know, honestly, if you want to, if you're going to live on one percent of what you have, like, there's no one that would, almost no one that would say that's not going to work, right? So there's some number between one and four that that works, and so I started I started looking in the two and a half to three and a half range and to feel comfortable. Um, so that was it. I spent a lot. And of so time you knew your it. your kind of monthly nut what, what it took to yeah. run your family the what the mortgage, the school, what all your expenses, right. you knew what that was. And you could kind of back in to say, okay, in order to generate that amount of money, what kind yep. of pile of yeah. money do I need? Right. Uh, and I also have, I also have some other smaller income sources. You know, I, again, I run a, a conference for startup founders and that generated a little bit. It still generates a little bit. And so I knew that, and again, I knew I would still work, but I didn't ever want to have to count on, you know, any of that revenue. Such a fascinating, uh, calculation, I think, for folks to do. And I love the distinction between 
not wanting to work, but not, never having to work, which in yes. your case was the latter. And uh, a beautiful distinction. Let's get back to the deal. So the lead pages guy, what's his name? The one who sent you the email? Yeah, his name's Clay, Clay Collins. Clay. Okay. So Clay sent you this email. Very direct. Love it. Uh, what happens next? So obviously I got a little panicky. I mean, just, I had never been through an acquisition like this where it's like, Hey, I'm going to sell the whole company. I'd sold, you know, SaaS, but just technology before, right. Where it's like, yeah. it's just a smaller deal. I'm not selling a whole team and, and potentially relocating, you know, and, and doing all that. So I, I did ask for some advice from some startup founder friends of mine. And they basically said, if you're going to do it, play hard to get basically say, Hey, willing to talk about it, really don't need to sell, we're profitable and growing, which was all true. And so that was my initial response. And I think it was pretty much radio silence for like a month. He just didn't respond. And I thought, oh. man, that sucked. Did I kill the deal that quickly? Oh, I love it. <laughs> but I later What'd learned- What'd you do? Did you, just, like, did you just sit on your hands and not like- Well, you know, again, this was, this was you know, July of, of, 20, of 2015 and the business was growing. And I, I think I hired, I mean, we were only at- four or five people at that point. And I hired three or four more in the next several months because we were just growing. So I was busy with the business. And while a potential acquisition was a, a great dream, it wasn't a necessity, you know, and that was a good place to be in. Um, and so I kind of waited for him to come back around. And, and eventually So wait, your email was, hey, happy to talk, but like, don't need to sell. We're growing. Yep. So that's it. Yep. And then didn't hear from him for, you know, a month or two. And I, I later learned, I asked him about that because he, again, he and I have breakfast now every few months. We live in the same town. And, yep. and he said, you know, what happened is I got really busy. We, we raised this big round of funding and I got really busy managing the business and I just didn't come back to it. Like it was purely, you know, and I always thought it was a strategic, you know, it was this big negotiating thing and it, it wasn't, it was just what happened. Right. Just the life takes over and he, yeah. and he got busy. So where does it go from there? So he wound up circling back and saying, hey, you know, we should, get to, it was a couple months later, we should continue the conversation. And we've actually hired a, a corporate development person. And for, you know, for folks who don't know, corporate development is, is code for acquisitions, right? That's, mm -hmm. we're going to buy some companies, M&A. And so this is probably the, you know, the fall now of, of 2015. And so he introduced me to, um, to the M&A or the corp dev guy named James. And he and I started talking, and but it it really went slow, and I, I could kind of feel that James maybe didn't have the authority to to run the acquisition through, you know, and and that I think Clay was really busy, and his his wife was pregnant with twins, you know, and just a lot of life was happening in the company. I mean, they were at 150 employees, fast growing startup, raised 38 million, so a lot was going on, and there were big gaps between, you know, conversation points, and it it was probably in uh, November that I was pretty stressed about it, thinking I don't want to mess this up. And I actually got a, a broker involved, um, you know, a, a software broker who's in our space. Um, the broker give him a plug? Is, What's his or her yeah, name? Yeah, it it's FE International um, is the brokerage name. And yeah, they're a small one. You know, they're a niche. They do a lot of SaaS and they do some semi-commerce and stuff. And I had a broker there named David who who really was advising me like, hey, just, you know, relax, chill out, play hard to get. This is, you know, this is going to, going to work out. Um, and at a certain point, I believe David and, and James, the corp dev guy, eventually by November or something like started hinting around and throwing out a range, a sales multiple range of like, well, it should be between nine and 14 revenue. Oh, it should be between five and 10, you know, and that's where like the loose negotiation started. And then it just, it just dropped and there was no, they kind of said, it looks like we're too far apart and this isn't going to happen. And that was it for the holidays. Got it. And what's your uh, emotional state at this point? I was, oh, it, you know, it's, I was stressed and I was thinking if we don't sell the company, I need to raise a round of funding because my back to the, my hair being on fire, we need more capital to, to run this business and grow it well. And I wasn't going to go the venture track where I raise a bucket of money, but I did need a few hundred grand to kind of help ease some things. And so I actually started gearing up. I mean, like a true, you know, an entrepreneur, it's like, you're just constantly battling that next roadblock, that next speed bump of what is the challenge. And so I actually did start gearing up to raise a small angel round. Um, I was disappointed. I mean, pretty, I, I wasn't devastated, but I definitely thought of it as like, 
that would end the pain a little bit, you know, the pain of, of running the business. I enjoyed running the business, but there's also just a lot that you're dealing with. And so I knew that if, you know, we didn't sell it, that I, I figured we should bring some money into the, some capital in for growth. So is, is the broker actually throwing out numbers like nine to 14 times revenue? Yeah. I mean, that was, it was months of conversation that wound up like that kind of stuff came out and yeah. they would kind of ask me and it's like, well, you name the first number, you know, is that, it was like on phone calls of like, well, what you name the first number, you name the first number. So it was, I mean, maybe it was six, six phone calls that, you know, wind up eventually getting around to, to, because they were asking about revenue and then they'd come back a month later and ask, oh, update us on your churn and your revenue. And I'd prepare it all again. Obviously we had a mutual NDA at that point, no, no LOI. And it started to become, um, I, and I don't think they were doing this on purpose. I think they were just kind of waiting to see what things were doing. But like, it started to become a little bit of a burden of like, I don't want to prepare this. I don't want to give you more information every two or three months on our growth. We kind of need to, to start talking numbers or this isn't worth it. Are you even willing to pay? You know, because I think at the time, like public stock markets were, um, SaaS valuations were in the five, maybe five to six times annual revenue. Um, and so, you know, are they, is that where they're going to be or do we need to be higher than that or whatever? So, so you're, you're looking for a multiple higher than a public company. Well, at least to start negotiation, you know? Wow. That was the thing. Yeah. They, I, to be honest, we had, and then we had another suitor start talking to us around this time. So that became okay. leverage as well. Right. So then it was like, well, we have this other company we're talking to. I mean, that was, that was where it was bouncing back and forth and almost doing, I wouldn't say we were doing a, a bidding process, but we were definitely playing them off one another. That was a private equity firm. Got it. And, and was that something David found, the, the PE firm? No. Well, no, they kind of approached us out of the blue. We kept getting on these lists, uh, like the venture beat, you know, big startup lists of 20, if whatever year that was. And, and that brought in a lot of interest that actually brought in venture capitalists too. We would get two or three emails a month from like venture capitalists wanting to invest. And that wasn't a route I wanted to go down. Um, but it definitely brought some acquisition interest too, which was helpful. And, and did the PE firm that was at the table, did, did they throw out any kind of numbers? They, they did. Well, they, they threw out what their typical ranges were, you know, and they and said, well, that? if it's, they said, if, if you're over a million, um, oh, I'm trying to think of what they were. If you're over a million growing at like 10%, 10 to 20% a year, then it's like two to three times revenue, but we can go as high as like five or six. It was in the range of the public markets basically, but it was only on the, like the fastest growing deals and they really had to be motivated is what it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause you guys were growing fast, right? Like what, what yeah. would have, at this, at this point when you were, just shy of 2 million of AR your annual. I think we we're doubling. I think we doubled from one to two, if I recall correctly. And then I was going to try to double again. I think we were on track to double again is what it was. So I knew that we were, you know, it was a lot. I mean, you're small. It's easier to, to get those high percentages, but still definitely had that brand, you know, a mini brand in the space. Got it. Got it. And was the PE firm a legitimate offer? Like, were you legitimately considering that or was it more of a pawn as a way to kind of lever up the lead pages guys? I would prefer, I would have preferred to gun with lead pages. I just, mm -hmm. I knew the space, I knew the invest, the VCs who had invested, I knew what they wanted to do with the product and it was to integrate it with their product and really care for it. And I felt like we would get treated the best with them. So I, I would say I was open to either, but I definitely leaned towards, I, I wanted to use the other offer as a, uh, it wasn't even an offer, the other conversation as a pawn for sure a negotiating piece of leverage yeah yeah why didn't lead pages and clay just throw three engineers in a basement somewhere and make their own product <laughs> yeah i asked them that actually um because i said why not just build it and the honest answer is it takes a lot of it's a lot of time. It's a lot more time than, than people think. I mean, we were thousands and thousands of engineering hours into building it. In addition, Drip still today is one of the most well-architected and well-designed from a user perspective. It's a really elegant app, and we had gone to great lengths to do that. I mean, it was our thing that we cared for and nurtured, and it's hard to find really good product people to design apps. I mean, most of the software you use on the web isn't that great. And it's because it's hard to make great software. And Drip was one of those. There's a reason that as four people, five people in a, basically in a closet in, in Fresno, 
we were on the top 10 marketing automation, uh, which is kind of a subset of ESPs. We were in like the top 10 list on VentureBeat, but everyone else on that list had raised between 50 and $200 million. And we had no funding in essence. And it was because our app, it was just really elegant and it hit at the right place at the right time. And so while someone could have spent, hired five or 10 engineers and spent a couple years building, you know, you think about spending X million dollars to, to get there faster. And at a certain point, that just makes sense from, from their perspective. Got it. Got it. Okay. So back to the conversation. So you've got, uh, I'm trying to think of all the players here. So the James, the corporate development guy, David, the, 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 uh, the broker, they're just too far apart. Right. And, yep. and so they say, okay, well, I guess this isn't going to happen. Yep. That's right. And then, and, and then what? Well, yeah, at that point, and again, that was probably October, November, you know, of 2015. And I just, I said, well, I guess that's it. I mean, I'm not going to go back to that. You know, I, I mean, as a negotiating piece, I'm not going to go back and say, okay, I'm willing to, to go lower or anything. I was just like, we're not going to, we're not going to sell to them. We're going to sell to someone else or we raise that round of, of angel funding. And we were launching this really big feature in January and it was, it's called workflows. And it's this visual way to automate things where it's more kind of like a drag and drop builder. And there was only one other, one or two other visual workflow builders in the space out of hundreds of competitors. And ours was just the, the chef's kiss. You know, it was a really well-designed thing. It was with all the modern tools. And um, we went live in late January with that. And that instantly overnight doubled, I believe it doubled our growth rate. It was like almost, yeah, 100%, 150% increase in growth. And a week later, got an e another email from Clay who said, hey, I saw what you launched. This looks really cool. We should have, a, we should have another chat. And, and that, was, that was what really blew his socks off because he knew the space really well and he knew that we had launched something that very few others could build, you know. Mm. So for him, it was really a product feature that reignited his appetite to buy your company. Yeah. Yeah. And because he knew that it, there was so much differentiation that we stood, that we were literally in the top two or three in the space at that point, even though we weren't in the top two or three. I mean, the biggest one who kind of had the visual builder was called Infusionsoft. And I think they were doing a hundred million in revenue, you know, or somewhere in, in that range. And the other one was doing 30 or 40 million maybe. So we weren't near their size, but we had the bulk of the feature set to, to compete with them head to head. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so where does it go from there? Yeah. So we started talking again and that was where we weren't too far apart. Suddenly, you know, things started coming. They, they came up and we just wound up finding a, a, a price and not, it wasn't just price though. I mean, as you know, there were all types of terms. It was like, how long do you have to stay in work? What are we going to do with your employees? Um, what type of stock compensation, what type of salary compensation while you work for us? You know, there's all these terms that we eventually started, started ironing out. And when they hit, when they hit my never have to work again number, um, that was uh, that was a, that was a good day. That's fantastic. So, when you what was the structure like? Was was it all cash, or did you have sort of an earnout component or a, a sort of financing you had to? Have? I'm not imagining there'd be financing, but there was no financing. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, I mean, it, it was an all cash offer, but there was definitely you know there was at close there's the hold back for liability purposes, right? Which most people don't, don't know about, but I, and I don't remember if that was 10 or 15%, but it was some you, standard number. That's usually referred to like as an escrow by lawyers. Is that what that was? Where it's basically if we put this 10% away yeah. held by lawyers and they've had that and there's automatically, disputes. exactly. Yep. And it automatically comes out. That's not part of the earnout. Like whether right. you bust the earnout or not, that comes to you after I think 12 months or 18 months. Yeah. So that was held. And then, yeah, there was a portion of it. Uh, the minority of it was held. Uh, it was all cash and the minority of it was held um, for an earnout of, it was, 12 to 18 months, depending on some stuff, basically. And we had to, you know, launch a few features during that time. But it was, it was a deal that I felt good about because I didn't want, I didn't want net profit milestones. I didn't want revenue milestones. I didn't want anything like that. I've, I just heard too many horror stories about having to hit marks. And um, they were, and you know, it wouldn't have been a deal with these guys in terms of, I've heard private equity say, oh, you need to hit these revenues. And then like, not giving you the resources to hit the revenue, right? So that they can keep their, their earn out. And that was, that did not happen and would not have happened with these guys. But I didn't know I was being really, really cautious about it. Got it. And so you tied your earn out to launching certain features? Yeah. Yeah. It was a couple, couple features that were on our roadmap that we all agreed, hey, these should, 
these should get launched. And I knew that we could, I mean, frankly, just with my co-founder, he could launch those features in that time. Like we literally didn't need anyone else. So it, I was pretty, we were pretty confident that we could get those out. And, and it was features, but it was over time too, right? They wanted to keep us around to do the transition and everything. So, um, yeah, I think it was at 12 months. We got a, you know, big, big chunk of money. Got it. Where were you when the wire was set? Yes. What was uh, that like? I was at, so my two boys play cello and violin and we were, wow. at, we were at a strings camp in, in Oregon and I was signing the docs. Let's take a moment just to think about how crazy that is. <laughs> it, it really, okay. it never ceases to amaze me. And so my yeah. son is being instructed by a cello teacher and like email ding comes through my phone and I'm, I pick up my phone and I'm signing with my finger these, these sale docs of this yeah. incredible trans, you know, transaction. Um, and the wire came through later that afternoon and we were staying in a dorm in, on a university and it was my wife and I, and we put the kids to bed and I said, our life just changed, you know, and I showed her the, the bank balance and uh, I had a bottle of, some, of scotch or whiskey or something. And, and we took a sip and just kind of celebrated and sat there just dumbfounded. And I was both purely in shock, but also very emotionally. I mean, I started crying, you know, just the, the stress of that that six months prior was, I cannot overstate how much that, how hard that was on me personally. Hmm. What made it so hard? I didn't want to screw it up. It's a hard decision too. You know, you've worked, I mean, frankly, my whole adult life was all in on this business. And while I knew it was the right decision, um, negotiating is definitely not, I don't enjoy it. I'm, I'm the person who wants to, I want to get things done. I want to say, yes, I'm an entrepreneur who wants to ship. And if people ask me for something, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Negotiating is saying, no, no, thank you. No, I'm going to be a hard ass. I'm going to be kind of a jerk here. I'm going to get what I want over you. And I, obviously there's compromise and there's all that. And I knew we were going to work together. So I wasn't, I wasn't a mean person, but it definitely felt against my nature. And the stress of running the company full-time and also doing 20 to 30 hours a week of what it felt like of, of, you know, talking through these negotiations and not telling, not telling our team, you know, my co-founder knew, but my team didn't know till two weeks before. And that, even that took, you know, it took its toll on me. What kinds of things did you say no to? Well, I mean, so there was, you know, no around the price for sure. There was no, like the initial earnout was longer than what we arrived at. Um, I pushed back on our salaries. Um, I put, they were very reasonable by there. I want to, I want to like their initial offer was actually a quite fair offer. It was just, I had pretty high expectations for what I was going to accept. And so, um, oh, I think there was even like a, there was conversation at one point about having the money, like the, the earnout be based on, what was it? It was like performance of the application or like not going down and really stuff that I didn't feel comfortable we could measure effectively, you know, that, mm. that, so there was just a lot of conversations around that with technical people who weren't involved in the deal. It was technical folks on their side, engineering leads. And those because sometimes became contentious because it became two or three engineers talking about how to measure something. And I was like, you have, I remember at one point I said, you have no skin in the game. This is millions of dollars to me. I will, you know, I became that guy. And I, that's just not me by nature, you know, and I had to get a little, uh, a little into it in some, some of the conversations. And later I, they were my coworkers. They actually joined the Drip team afterwards. Um, and Drip became, you know, later the company sold off lead pages to a private equity and Drip is the company now. So they are my friends, acquaintances, and colleagues. And at one point I did apologize to one guy, you know, like a year later and say, remember that one call? And he's like, oh, I don't even, he didn't remember it, but I, you know, I remembered um, that the people you're negotiating with can sometimes be your coworkers three months later. That's really wild. How did you... And, and maybe maybe your broker uh, David had something to do with this. Tell, tell me tell me if he did. How did you um, how did you ensure that you did not overplay your hand? Mm -hmm. Be such a prick that they were just going to yeah. say like this guy's unreasonable. <laughs> like yeah. I'm I'm not gonna. It, it's a good question, and it's a very fine line that. 
I, I obviously walked, but I did struggle with it a couple times. And I remember at one point, I don't remember what the deal point was, if it was still price or something, but I remember Clay sent me kind of a voicemail message. We were using an app called Voxer where you could send, you know, push to talk and then you get a voicemail. And he said, this is dragging on. Is this thing just too, is this just too hard? Is, are we just not going to make this work? Cause we're months into this and I still feel like we're not close to a deal. And I remember I was in my garage in Fresno and it was like, you know, it's like 100 and, 105 degrees there. And I remember being super hot listening to it while my kid was in the next room. One of them was like crying. And, but I had, you know, I was just like stressed over what, what do I do here? Is, is this attack? Is he trying to tactically get me to give in to this thing? Is he threatening to pull the deal or am I really being unreasonable? That was the decision point. And so then I would run it by David. That was a, you know, I talked to my wife, I talked to David, I talked to friends and say, what do you think about this? And it was all about finding my bottom line, really. Um, and on that one, I think that I wound up being okay with. I think I think I won that that deal. And later, again, I'm I knowing Clay as well as I do now, it wasn't a negotiating tactic. He was, I think, he was genuinely just frustrated with it. Um, but I didn't I didn't push it so hard that I could feel when he got frustrated or when people on the other side got frustrated. It was nice dealing with humans and not dealing with a huge committee. I can imagine, I don't know what it's like to sell to private equity because I haven't, but I can imagine dealing with these maybe nameless, faceless executives on a board where you don't get to talk to them and it's just numbers. And it wasn't like that. It definitely felt like a more personal, um, there was a little bit of relationship involved in the transaction. But it sounds like your your intuition was was, Look, the, the brokers and the lawyers and, you know, the corp dev guy, they can fight all they want. But when the CEO picks up the phone and cares enough yeah. to call me, that might, that might elevate my radar a little bit more, it sounds like. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it, is that I did at certain times want there to be a barrier. I wanted the lawyers and the brokers to deal because it was it was like, well, I don't want to be the bad guy on this or I want to be the bad cop that's behind behind them. Um, but you're right. When there was direct contact and he honestly said, this is this is crappy. I don't know if this is going to go through. There was um, there were definitely some moments of, you know, of reflection of self-reflection on my part. Do you remember what the issue was? that caused him to pick up the phone? I don't. I'm, I was trying to think. I think at some point they wanted to pay in stock and that might, or like partial stock instead of, of basically all cash. <laughs> um, and I didn't want stock in a privately, you know, VC funded held company that I didn't know of would ever go public or whatever. So that might have been the, there was, that was a sticking point for a while. So that may have been the thing. Got it. Got it. What was your wife's reaction? When you said (laughs) this has changed our life forever? I mean, well, my wife's reaction the whole time during the acquisition was, oh my gosh, you are so stressed. You are not pleasant to be around. So that was, (laughs) that was tough. It, it, it didn't. Yeah. I mean, it took a toll on us, you know, our our relationship, but um, her reaction was a big sigh of relief, just like mine, I think. And just like, okay, so at least that part's over, you know, because again, the negotiation, it was like five months of pretty, pretty rough. Um, me being kind of a basket case, which if I were to do it again, I would, it would be so different because I, I put importance on a lot of things that I just don't think mattered that much, you like know, what? like, um, I mean, I, well, maybe, maybe they didn't matter because I had them documented, but I mean, I really wanted everything in the LOI. Like I, it, the LOI was not vague at all. The LOI pretty much became the purchase docs. Everything. L- LOI being letter of intent for those who don't know that expression or that, that yes. acronym. So if you were to do it again, you would not be so rigorous on the LOI. Yeah, I guess. I guess that's a maybe. I should, <laughs> maybe I should uh, take that back. I guess I should just. I wanted to. I wish I had managed my own psychology a little better. I wish that I had reflected and said, you know what, take a deep breath, do some meditation, and you do need to be rigorous. But if this goes through or doesn't, you're going to be okay. Because I would have been. We would have been fine either way. But at a certain point, it did become the last month especially of like, oh, if this doesn't go through, uh, it's going to be really hard. Um, yeah, I just stressed about it more than I wished I had, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I, it was, I was unnecessarily stressed. I, I run a little bit anxious as it is, just my personality and genetics and everything. And I, I, it was kind of unchecked during that time. So if I were to do it again, I would want want to be way more chill about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Makes sense. Well, I, I, I'm grateful for you sharing the story. So what's up now? What are you, what are you up to these days? Yeah. So I took, um, you know, obviously worked, worked with drip lead pages for what about 18 months, I guess. And then, um, took six months off after that. And six months off is still recording podcasts. And I started working on a book and I ran three in-person events, but you know, off from like running big companies. (laughs) So then I kind of continued the through line that I've been doing with, you know, helping other SaaS founders for the past decade or more. And, um, I wound up raising a, a small fund and started an accelerator. And accelerators, oh, for those really? who don't know, yeah, it's a startup accelerator oh, for SaaS founders, cool. bootstrap SaaS founders. So it's similar to like a Y Combinator model, although yep. we're a bit different. And so that's called Tiny Seed. And um, that's what I'm doing now. We're on our second batch of, of companies. We've invested in 23 SaaS founders, uh, SaaS companies, wow. um, who want to take a different tact. It's not venture funding where we have to do the unicorn, go big or go home thing, but it's much more like, like, I, I kind of wished I, with Drip, had been able to raise $100,000, $200,000 pretty easily mm-hmm. and still be able to, you know, you can still exit for 10, 20 million and have that be a home run versus once you take mm-hmm. venture, they really want this massive, massive returns. So, what a cool model. So, it's called Tiny Seed? Tiny Seed, S E E D. Oh, oh yeah. forgive me, Tiny Seed. Yep, and where like would a, people learn about that? Is there a URL or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, tinyseed.com. Uh, you know, obviously folks are running, you know, starting a startup that we have a batch application process every year, every uh, six to 12 months. Really, the other interesting thing is we're raising our second fund right now because we, hmm. we found these great companies and, you know, we spent the first four and a half million bucks pretty quick. So um, tinyseed.com slash thesis is really our investment thesis of like, we are trying to index into early stage B2B SaaS companies. And so we're getting a lot of people who come to us and say, I've wanted to invest in SaaS and I know it's this great asset class, but like I'm not going to do it once they go public because a lot of the value has, has already come out of it. So we get sure. in the very, very early days, you know, the pre $20,000 a month uh, price points type thing. And so that's really cool. And I mean, what a, what a neat spot for you to evaluate some of these applications, given your uh, experience with applications, your engineering background. I mean, you're in a great yeah. position to, as Clay did with you, evaluate the feature set and say, yeah, this has got legs and this is yep. crap. Yeah. And that's, that it. I mean, I, you know, having run SaaS apps now for, I don't know, 12, 13 years, which is like an eternity because SaaS has only been around for, you know, maybe 15 ish, um, that it, it does help. And I've run this community, you know, this, it's called, called microconf. I've run that community for more than a decade. And that is also <laughs> given me a lot of insight and just a lot of, uh, kind of connections in the SaaS space. That's really cool. Well, Rob, I really appreciate the, uh, the, uh, the time today, tinyseed.com is the URL. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. My pleasure, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.